welcome. Thanks for coming. Rick Gregory. Uh, my pleasure. It's nice to have you here. Okay, I'm good. I've always enjoyed our conversations in the past and find you very interesting and, and happy to have you here and and uh, learn more about your story and because it's not typical. You know, I've worked in the real estate industry for a long time now and um, your story is international and, and more interesting than normal. So where did it all begin for you? When did you uh, decide to take this path in life? I'm flattered. You know, I... I uh got into the industry probably very young. I, I, you know, started with building tree forts in, in, in the backyard and, uh, and we had a forest behind us that we used to, uh, you know, build in and building go-karts and waiting for my neighbor's rototiller to hit the bucket, to kick the bucket and getting the engine from that and building things that uh, we, I've always been, uh, been interested in, in, uh, in building. That's cool. Where was that? Where'd you grow up? Grew up in the West end of Ottawa. Oh yeah. Nice. And then uh, Carlton? I went to Hogsback High, we called it. Yeah, it was uh, near Hogsback Falls and uh, it was Carlton University back in the in the 70s. And it was a pretty fun place to be. I wasn't a very serious student, uh, certainly in, at the beginning. Uh, it was more, you know, interconnecting with all high school friends and, yeah. and uh, living for the weekends. And Yeah, I'm familiar. And then uh, architecture, Construction. We're from there. I, you know, I, 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 I had a degree from Carleton in uh, in geology. So I was working in northern Canada, uh, and then uh, and then out west here in, in British Columbia, in the Yukon. I worked down in in the states in California and Nevada. And what I enjoyed most about exploration, which was the industry I was in, was was building the the camps. You know, at the beginning of the the summer when you would fly in materials and things and, and construct the camps. Uh, and so my career kind of evolved into um, doing more of the engineering work relating to ge geology, the geotechnical side of the business. And so working for some engineering firms and for BC Hydro, I did quite a bit of work uh, and uh, and decided to go back uh, into engineering to uh, pick up what I needed to get my, my professional engineering license. Cool. And what uh, I'm, I'm just dying to ask you about your experience with the Burj Al Arab. It's one of the most beautiful, huge project, one of the most beautiful buildings in the world still. What took you over there? How did that start? Well, it, it, I had I had accepted a job in, in Abu Dhabi and, and had worked on it and uh, for about a year. And the, the opportunity uh, uh, came up in Dubai to move there and, and, and take on uh, a project management position for the Burj. And so I uh, I uh, started that that job just as the island was was uh, under construction, and I was probably the the last one, if or one of the last ones, if not the last one, to to leave the uh, the project. I ended up uh, uh, switching over to uh, an American company that was doing work uh, uh, building large aquariums, uh, and they were doing three large aquariums on the ground floor of the of the Burj, and so. Ended up uh, moving to that company, and uh, we were, you know, providing services uh, after the aquarium was finished. Uh, so I, I, I was on the project, even though we were taking on other projects in the Middle East and in Southeast Asia. But I, I kept involved with it with the bird for about a year after its construction. Really, and so it, you said the island was built before you got there. I'm interested in that. Like how it was being built was being when built. I was there. Yeah, we 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 put riprap rock uh, uh, in a, in a ring, and then and then essentially got dredges and uh, sucked 
What is it? Rip rack. Rip rack. Oh, just large, you know, boulders that are sharp, angular, and and in the in the in the order of a you know a couple of tons each. Uh, So these are large boulders, and and so a ring off the bottom of the ocean uh, up to up to the water level, and then we we dredged and and used in a hydraulic dredging to to fill up the 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 island to get a, a place to start where we could. So how do they do that? Do they just drop the rock? Here, 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 in, in a ring shape, and just keep doing that, or is it? More? Yeah, there's a there's cranes on barges, yeah. and uh, and barges come in with the rock, and the the cranes pick up the rock. Uh, they're they're like a, a claw, yeah, and they put them down. There's divers at the bottom that help place them, and uh, Jesus, and, uh, so there's divers sitting down there, and this two ton boulder is dropping down. There are many divers down. Wow. There, yeah. Well, they don't drop they don't drop it from the water surface. They 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 it goes down. Oh, they get the the cable wet. Do they? Are they, they, they get that? the cable wet? They, <laughs> they bring it right to the boat. Of course. Yeah. Ah, interesting. And how deep is that water? It was. Uh, I have to remember now. It was in the order of I think about ten meters. I could be off a little bit. Maybe yeah. it was eight meters or something. Yeah. Like that. It wasn't very deep. And they're still doing it. I mean, they're building more and more. Land, right? I've seen something that looks like a flower shape, and there's others. They've built a lot of a lot of islands. Uh, yeah. yeah, they've built a couple of palm, what they call palm islands, uh, and and another one that what they call the world, where they've built all these islands yeah. that form different countries in the different continents. Yeah. And what do you think about that as a as a way of creating more land? I, I think it's a very expensive way of creating Is land, it? and and it's it's got its its its, its drawbacks. It uh, we used to live. Near where uh, where one of the the offshore islands was being built, and it was a cool place to live because it was called Sur- We lived just off Surfers Beach, it was only a block away, and our kids used to, after school, would all head down and and and, and surf. Uh, the beaches were were sugar sand; they were just beautiful white sand beaches. But once the the islands got were being put in, they were dredging, and so all the fine materials goes into suspension, and ends up on the beaches and and then you no longer have the wave action coming in because these islands are now now built on like a breakwater yeah and so the sand is is a much stiffer muddier uh, maybe muddy is the wrong word but but still certainly siltier, siltier. uh and, and and you no longer have that uh, that sort of great great amenity of, of of the surfer's beach yeah that's too bad um and is there any other environmental impact besides the yeah, there, there are. There's. It's. It was one of the regions with the greatest extent of carpet corals uh, in 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 the world, and and they were heavily affected by all the dredging. There, I mean, there was so much dredging in in the Dubai area that uh, they were, you know, adversely affected. And I don't know to what degree. I'm not a biologist, but uh, just from what I what I had read and heard, yeah, uh, there, there was there was there was problems with yeah. with that. And I don't know whether they've bounced back now or not. Uh, but yeah. Do they, do, do the islands that they build, do they last? Is there any maintenance issues or? There's still there. There's maintenance issues. They, they, you know, there, there's erosion by, by, by wave actions. Uh, and, and so they, they, uh, they have to be built and armored correctly so that, uh, that they don't. And if they're not, they will, they will, they will, they will you know, require maintenance. Uh, and, and there's on, on our project here, you have sand that migrates along the shore. So, it, it builds up on the back of the island. It's called a tombola. You can see it from from the pictures that you've got on your screen there by the bridge. Uh, the, it's not a straight line. The shore it sort of sweeps out, and and that that yeah. uh, that uh, that sand uh, needs to needs to be uh, relocated uh, from time to time. Otherwise, it builds up and and would clog up all the way to the island. Oh, really? It looks cool. It's a beautiful building. 
it's uh, it's a stunning building. I agree. Yeah. And what's it used for? What, what, what's the use of it now? It's it's a a hotel. I think there was two hundred and two units. Uh, they're very large units. Uh, all of them were were two stories with a stairway that connected. Yeah. So even though it was like a a sixty story or fifty eight story building, uh, it was really double that uh, because of the uh, the two story nature of each each floor. I think each floor was seven meters from floor to floor, and yeah, and so you had a three and a half meter floor in between, a mezzanine on each floor. That's cool. What was it like living there? Dubai was, uh, I, I lived there from ni- 1995 to 2004. And at the time it was, it was a superb place to live. Just loved it. It was great for our, we had four children. Uh, it was a great place for them to grow up. Um, most of the people, like 85% were, were from outside the country. And so when you have that many people from outside the country, you tend to socialize a lot more. Uh, you know, here we, we go out, you know, once or twice a month there, you were going out, uh, every other day. Uh, it yeah. was just, there was a lot of, a lot of social aspects of it because everybody's away from home and looking I guess that's why, right? And, yeah, yeah. The people are not yeah. necessarily lonely, but they're, you know, they're looking to connect. That's you know? right. Yeah. So it, it was a fun place, uh, both professionally and, uh, and socially to, to, to work. And our, our kids, uh, thrived in, uh, in, uh, I think there was 200 different, uh, nationalities that went to their school. I mean, it was very, very diverse. Oh, yeah. How old were they at the time? Well, when we moved over to there, I think our youngest was two and our oldest was 12. We were there for 10 years. Wow. Cool. And they liked it. They, they had good memories of there. They, uh, yeah, they loved it. They've all been back. I'm, I think I'm the only one that hasn't been back. <laughs> you had a gut full. <laughs> you don't think it's good now? You said it was a really nice place to live then. You think it's changed? Well, it, it, it's, it's got a reputation as being kind of the Las Vegas now of, of the Middle East. Uh, and, and I just look at the, the uh, you know, how much building has, has gone on and the, the traffic that's there now. When, when we were there, you know, we used to the kids would say, take the desert way to, to school in the morning and you just drive and you, you weren't even on roads. We would, we would drive, uh, uh, and cut across roads from time to time, but we could, we had a few miles to get to school and driving through the sand dunes. Uh, it's not like that anymore. It's a, yeah. it's a, a very different place. Like, like a lot of places in the world it's evolved over the last, uh, 20 to 30 years. No doubt. And what brought you back? Well, we had two children starting university, uh, another starting high school. And, uh, and we had been there for 10 years. So, uh, we, uh, we thought Vancouver, which was like a second home to, to Joanne and I, we had lived here before. I thought we'd move to, to Vancouver. We had a lot of friends here, uh, uh, living on the North shore. And so we, uh, we made the move in, in 2004. Nice. And, and, and work-wise, what was next for you? Was it IntraWest? Yeah, I had, uh, that was the other reason we, we chose Vancouver. I had a, a, an offer from, uh, from IntraWest um, to head up their, their construction. And, uh, and so it was, uh, it was a, an attractive job offer. So yeah, there's a number of things that aligned up. And so we moved here. It's a cool company. I, I've met a lot of uh, ex-IntraWest people over the years and, uh, you know, there's like a glory days sort of, um, you know, thread storyline, you know, through most of the stories I've heard. And it, that company just went on such a huge tear. I imagine you had a pretty good experience with them. When I was there, we were we were building, had active construction projects in 22 pedestrian villages. And uh, 
there was no other companies that were building villages, yeah. pedestrian-based villages, yeah. uh, and and so it was, uh, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was quite an interesting job. I I, I, I liked it a lot. Um, it, uh, it when it sold, um, it, it was, there was a lot of talent within within Vancouver because we were our head office was here. Yeah, and uh, and that evaporated essentially uh, nobody sort of slid in and took over the company that bought it uh, uh, you know divided it up and sold off all the assets essentially but didn't didn't make any didn't attribute any value to to the experience and the, and, the, and the expertise that the the firm had developed over the, the yeah. years that had been around mm -hmm. it's too bad it was too bad <laughs> but such is life such is life CLV. what uh, what do you do next I, uh, I had, uh, my own company and, uh, and did some, some, I, I did a little bit, I was doing a lot of different things, but, but, uh, principally working up on the sunshine coast on a development. We had, my brother and I had bought some land in, in Gibson's and we were looking to, uh, get a subdivision approved. It was a 15 acre parcel that we were looking to get, uh, I think it was 102 units. Oh Yeah. When did you get into modular and prefab and, and that kind of thing? That was with uh, with Interwest. We had a, a, a an interesting project that was in um, in Snowshoe in West Virginia called Expedition Station, and uh, I had uh, I had, it had come to my attention um, that there was some some problems with it. It, it was a, a project that initially started off in our Denver office. We had six regional offices, one of which was in Denver, but they had bought five resorts in, in uh, Colorado and the Denver office was just overwhelmed with the amount of work. And so it was moved to the Florida office in Orlando. And, but that was a warm weather destination office that, uh, you know, was more concentrated on, on golf courses and, uh, and the like, and uh, and uh, beach resorts, but uh, so it, it again wasn't getting uh, the attention that it, it needed or deserved. So it was handed off to our Montreal office, which uh, uh, our, our president described to me as being dysfunctional. Um, I, I'm not sure that was the right right term for it, but it uh, I started getting calls from the the. Uh, uh, general contractor on it that the Montreal office wasn't returning their calls and they were about to start production in a couple of weeks time. So I called the, uh, our, our VP that was running the Montreal office and explained to him that, you know, what the situation was. And I know they were stretched. They had been buying re resorts in, in the States and in, in, in Eastern Canada that they were very busy with. So I, I said, well, listen, I'll, I'll go down and see what the issues are and, and, and see if I can get it get it, uh, get it unstuck. Um, so I went and, uh, the first thing I was planning to do was say, Hey, we're not going to be building modularly. We're going to do it the old fashioned way. We're going to build stick built. It was, a, it was a concrete structure in the commercial and then, and then four stories of wood frame on top. But it, you know, when I got there, I realized that it was too late. The design of a, a stick built building is very different from, from boxes that you're, you're putting together. And, and, the contract had already been awarded to the modular company, so canceling that would have had repercussions. Uh, they had started procuring materials, and they were in fact ready to start in a couple of weeks' time. So, my first question was, "What's a module?" And they explained that it was sort of 
one hotel room unit plus the hallway plus across the hallway, it was half the unit. And I, I said, well, why don't you split it right in the hallway and have two, two units uh, instead of uh, splitting the unit in the middle? And they explained that, well, the other half of that unit was part of that other module. And then the other one and a half units was three modules to get four suites. And if you split it in the hallway, you'd have four units to get four suites. And that's four positions in the factory and four trucks shipping and all. And it just economically didn't make sense. So I suggested that, why don't you just make one module for two units? Then you have one less truck and one less position in the factory. And they said, because your your building is is uh, 66 feet and our column to column width in our factory is 65 feet, eight inches. And so I said, well, it used to be I scratched off the 66 and I wrote on the drawing 65 feet and a half, 65 feet, six inches. And they said, well, you, you can't do that. We've, we've, we've already asked the architect and they don't have the space. And I, I said, well, I just did get, get the architect on the phone and and we'll, we'll sort it out. So we did, and it all worked out, and we shortened them, and we built these boxes that had had two units in them and, and, a, and a piece of unfinished corridor. So the boxes themselves were finished in the factory. Yeah. Uh, that included all the ceramic and, and, uh, and finishes and appliances and plumbing fixtures in, installed before they left, and the doors were locked. And so I, I took pictures on the day it was erected. It took 28 days in the factory to build all 100 units. It was 100 suites in the, in the hotel. Wow. And it took us six days to put the the hotel up and and sent it off to the president. And we both agreed we should be starting to build our villages using this technique. We were buying these boxes for $55 a square foot, which was unheard of in any of our other resorts. We were having labor problems in the resorts. And, and here you have under one roof a factory. You've got the electrical and the plumbing and the drywall and everything is all by the same company. So there's a, there's no tripping over uh, one another and it's, it's all very, very organized. So we started looking at modular companies and quickly realized they're not very sophisticated. They all, you know, have their different ways of moving modules. It's either pushing them around by hand or using a forklift or in the sophisticated ones, a, a chain in the floor. Uh, but other than that, there was no computers in the in the modular factories at all. Certainly in the factory part, maybe in the administration there would have been. So we started looking at prefab and a prefab company here in, in Vancouver that was based out of Port Hope, Ontario, uh, approached us and said, hey, listen, we, we'd like to build a factory that we can build modules out of. We used to be in the modular industry back in the 50s and... Uh, and we can build modules using prefab techniques and then get a lot quicker at putting up, you know, four and five, six story buildings that have a hallway down the center with units on either side. And so we started, uh, we started down that, that route. And I think we signed the letter of intent to go ahead with this venture on the day that Interwest announced that it was going to sell. Oh, really? <laughs> and so it didn't end up going anywhere, uh, yeah. yes. which is unfortunate. But again, c'est la vie, it's life. Yeah. yeah. What about the quality of prefab? I mean, that was a long time ago and now it's more common. Do you think the quality is better or worse? I've heard arguments both ways. Well, uh, there's various types of prefab. There's prefab where guys are in a barn and they're banging these things together with all the same tools. And I'd yeah. say they're about the same quality. Uh, and then there's prefab where you've got CNC equipment, which is, you know, cutting out, uh, drilling out, uh, uh, fastening, 
and that style of prefab is 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 much better quality. The nails are all depending on the earthquake zones and the requirements are set at different different spacings, yeah. and it's it's just a very accurate way of computer of, controlled. It's, it's all computer controlled numerically. Yeah, it's uh, it's and that was the the case here. The the company that was building them here was shipping. Uh, maybe five percent to California, but the other ninety-five was going to Japan. They were l- virtually doing nothing in the Lower Mainland. Their factory was here just so they could get stuff on a boat and, and ship that? it to Japan. Why Japan? I think they had started uh, many years ago from Port Hope servicing Japan, and uh, Japan liked the the the, the uh, convenience of of having uh, how homes shipped to a a site and and, and erected like. Uh, like Lego, it um, it was um, uh, something that yeah they, they fell in love with and and so uh, this company built up a, a solid reputation with them and they were they had their own people over in Japan and uh, the Japanese were over here uh, and uh, they were having problems shipping from Ontario to Vancouver or by train and 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 uh, and decided to build a factory here to service the Japanese market. I've heard another benefit of uh, prefab is that. The, th- the home is built in a climate controlled place, you know, so you usually see a home being built and it suffers all the weather, you know, the moisture, especially. Um, so it makes sense to me, you know, building in a massive warehouse until it's all sealed and then delivering it only then. Yeah. There's people that, you know, ha- ha- you know, build stick built and they, they, if they go to a, a prefab way of construction, they never go back. Um, yeah. it, there's not too many people that, uh, that, you know, are building prefab and go back to stick building. It's 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 the future. Why it hasn't caught on more? The the, the industry, even the company we were working with when we tried building uh, a prefab home here, uh, it was a custom made home, and it, it, you know it was a horror story. It just it, the, their systems were not set up for for doing custom homes, mm-hmm. and uh, and since then they've uh, they've stumbled and fallen and and essentially and, and eventually went out of build business. Yeah, that's too bad. Um, so, do you believe in it? Do you think it's the future of construction? I, I think the 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 modular construction using sort of the prefab CNC or computer controlled uh, way of building is is definitely the future. I think in in a few decades from now, uh, you know, our um, accommodations that again have this hallway running down with units on either side. Uh, will be built in in factories. You won't be using drywall uh, and taping and mudding and sanding. Uh, we don't do it in airplanes. Uh, nobody looks at the the joints in airplanes and says that would look nicer if they taped and sanded the. Yeah. Uh, um, I notice you you have Kaizen in your bio. It's one of our company's values. What's your what's your feelings about Kaizen? Tell the listeners what it means first of all. Well, it's a Japanese term uh, that uh, I'm not sure where it came from. I first learned of it in in reading the uh, a book on on Toyota's uh, process. Same, um, and uh, it's all about long term thinking and and continuous improvement. So when there's when there's a problem, which there always is in construction, uh, you stop. You gather around. You 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 find out what caused the problem, not just what it, what the the surface problem is, but you you go underneath and and you 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 explore and get right back to the root cause and and then you fix it. So each each time there's a problem, your company gets a little bit better. 
And so for me, it, it, it it's a very attractive way of, of, of doing business. There's construction's tough though. There's pressures from, from everyone from within and from, from without the, beyond the company that, uh, is more just don't worry about it. Just keep going and, and layer over and we'll fix it later. And, uh, and so it, it's an industry that's, that's ripe for improvement. And one way of doing that is to bring it indoors and all under one roof. When you have, uh, you know, 30 different companies working on a building all with their own self-interest, it, it's hard and it, it's human nature. It's hard to, you know, to, to slow down your work because somebody else has made a mistake. You'll put your work up and, and it's not my problem. If they want me to come back and, and repatch it after somebody has to open it up and, and fix something, I'll do it. But you know, I, I, I should get paid for that. I, yeah. I didn't make the mistake. Yeah. So when that's all under one roof, uh, uh, you can use Kaizen principles on a construction site. It's, it's, it's a little difficult. Let's talk about the Portman Bridge. What was your uh, role in uh, its construction design? Um, yeah, I have to choose my words carefully here. Uh, my understanding was, and, and certainly every piece of documentation that, that relates to this project uh, uh, was ha, had asked me to do a uh, an audit of the uh, of the money that was moving on the bridge uh, in the very early stages. What was the budget for the bridge? I guess it started there, right? I can only imagine. Well, I didn't look at the budget. No, I, 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 I was later asked, um, at least indicated that the the real interest was how, how the project was tendered and awarded. But that that at the time I was carrying out my audit, it was uh, it was looking at uh, payments that had been made. Mm -hmm. uh, there had been a number of payments made. It was early on. It was the it was months old that uh, since the contract had been awarded. Yeah, and so the auditor general had taken a look at the project and had determined that uh, the government rep um, at the time. Uh, there was some questionable things that he wanted me to look at yeah, that yeah. related to uh, related to this. Uh, How were you chosen for that? I was working for an accounting firm at the time, a large accounting firm, and uh, they had hired me uh, because I'd had a lot of experience looking at uh, how money moves on, on, on large construction projects. I had worked on projects that were in the, in the billions of dollars. This was, this was one that, uh, that certainly fit, fit that category. Uh, it was several billion dollars. Uh, yeah. and, um, you know, most auditing companies have accountants that they hire and their background is looking at, uh, you know, uh, financial statements and, you know, balance sheets and income statements. Well, on a construction project, you, you don't have that. It's a, you're looking at projects in terms of uh, what type of contract, the form of contract that's been entered into between the parties and, and, and uh, what defines the work and how that work is going to be paid for. There's processes that, uh, that are to be followed. And, yeah. uh, and so it's really looking in to see if those, those processes are, are being followed. And if, if there's anything untoward that's discovered along the way. I could tell you're being careful. It seems like that bridge is old, but it, is there still ongoing issues with your findings or how did it end? Um, the, the last conversation I had was with, uh, with the government lawyers. This was about a year ago. Wow. When was the contract? Like when, when was your, my, my, my involvement was in 2009. Wow. So it was many, many years later. Yeah. 
So that was the last time I, I've, I've spoken to, to anyone on it. Okay. And you're still talking about it because um, you're not done or you, it's done or? No, I'm not talking about it anymore. You've, <laughs> you've asked me. I'm talking about it because you've asked me. Yeah, yeah. About the poor man no, I mean, why are you talking with the uh, government rep? I mean, one year ago, like 10, more than 10 uh, years after the contract. There was, there was still a, a court case. I had sued both the, um, both the accounting firm and the government. And uh, this was just an ongoing case where part of the rationale for dropping my my suit was that they would they would uh, look into it in a little bit more detail than they had in the past and yeah. would would uh, would have a conversation about it. So that's uh, that, uh, part that of the was deal. that was part of the deal. Part of the last. Uh, yeah, I wonder why you're suing them. I mean, to get your bill paid or to cause them to do something that you thought ought to be done. Is this public record? It's, is it public record? It is. If you, if you know where to look for it, yeah. um, it's, um, yeah. Why was I doing this? Yeah. My brother never figured out why I was doing this. <laughs> I, I don't know. It was as, as a, a, an accountant and, and a lawyer, are, their, their allegiances are, are, are to their clients. Um, and, uh, and that's how the, the system works, uh, as an engineer, which I am, um, your allegiance is to the, the public good. And that, that, that doesn't just include safety. It, it includes the, uh, the public purse as well. And, uh, and so I felt that I needed to do everything that I could to, um, you know, try and get to the end of my audit, which I, I, I must admit I never did. Uh, there was things that were done that, that prevented me from, uh, from finishing, uh, finishing the audit. Wow. And I felt this was a way that maybe perhaps I could, I could, I could get to that and get, get to that point. And, and it would, would, uh, you know, to, to provide closure to something that I had started. It sounds interesting. I mean, it sounds like you could write a book, you know, if you wanted an expose of, of kind of the construction industry or, you know, public private partnerships and, you know, I've heard of it, you know, I've heard the construction industry especially is, uh, full of bribes and, and all types of, um, you know, extracurricular stuff around the contracts that happens. I guess that's been your experience too. Well, we, we know the, uh, there was, there was exactly what you're saying going on in Quebec for many, many yeah. years. Um, generally, um, it's it's not the politicians that are involved in in, in corruption, um, and uh, corruption tends to find appropriate projects, which often tend to be fixed link projects, so bridges and tunnels. And um, it was it was never a, a conclusion of my my audit that uh, that there was any corruption involved. So I, I want to make that clear. But again, I didn't get to the end of my my audit, so. There, whether there was corruption or not, uh, there was something going on. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> I wish you could talk about it. And I think, uh, have you thought about? Well, I, I have been involved with corruption before. Yeah. Uh, uh, in the Middle East, I, I came across corruption in construction projects, and it certainly has a, a, a certain smell. And uh, and and all I can say is there, there was there was an odor to to what what I was involved with, uh, yeah. but. Uh, whether or not it was uh, it was corruption or not, I, I can't say. So, in the Middle East, like, did you 
like pass an envelope or like what, what's that like over there? No, it's just when there's corruption going on, it, it's like throwing sand into the works. Construction project you're trying to keep going. It's got a pace and, uh, and it slows and, down and less and less. And, that? and so, yeah, when there's interests that are, are, are relating to, to, to payments under the table then those become what's the most important thing. And so you'd be in meetings and, and I, I, I finally, uh, uh, left a job, uh, because of corruption and, uh, the project manager on, on on the job that I was involved with called me a, a few days later and said, uh, this was a project in Abu Dhabi. He said, do you mind if I come up to Dubai? Can we grab a coffee? And I said, sure, come on up. And so he, uh, I, I met him a, a, a short time later. We're having coffee and he's saying, well, the, the reason you, you know, you, you were finding it frustrating and couldn't get on to things and the meetings were going sideways was because the government rep on the project was was getting paid off by the contractor. And so I said, well, how do you know? And he says, because I used to deliver the envelopes. No way. With gosh in them. <laughs> way. He just, he, went, he wanted me to know that it wasn't me, you know, yeah. that it was this corruption that was causing yeah. the, the problem. Well, in some countries, corruption is just part of doing business. It is. That's, that's, that's true. Uh, but it, it, in, in Dubai, which is where I, I, I spent most of my time, uh, the, um, the leadership, uh, would hear of corruption down in the port. There would be things going on the next thing, next day he'd be down there and three or four people would be fired. He, uh, in my mind correctly felt that, uh, corruption was like putting sand in the works and he didn't want it in Dubai. Uh, they weren't as diligent in, in other places in the Middle East, but Dubai in general was fairly similar to Canada. Um, you know, it, it was a, it was a good place to work. It promoted business. Uh, and, uh, what is the government in Dubai? Is it elected? It's, a, it's an autocratic system. Okay. Yeah. So it's not elected. No. And so what does that mean? Autocratic? It, you mean the leader just never changes? It's by birth. Yeah. Uh, and, and an autocratic system, I mean, it, it can, it can work better than a democratic system if you've got a good leader in place. Or worse, if you don't. Or worse, if you don't. And I think that's why Churchill said, you know, that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. <laughs> that's a good line. Uh, in China, there's, um, you know, uh, corruption, I guess, in that there's a lot of government uh, officials being paid, you know, by business people. But from what I'm told about it, it's pretty organized, you know, and, and it's almost like a tax system where there's a, a mayor equivalent, you know, of a city that's, you know, getting paid to make everything happen. Uh, and that person pays up to the, the district, you know, leader equivalent. And then that person pays up to the greater area leader and then eventually all the way up. Um, I don't know. It seems to be working for them pretty well. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have any experience with that, with uh, Asia, just, just the Middle East? I, I you know, I've, I've done projects in, in Southeast Asia. Um, yeah, there's, there's, uh, I, I, you know, I know companies that have ways of dealing with corruption. They they get a a, th a third party to, you know, they they pay them as a consultant. They don't want to know what uh, how the, how the money is spent, and they need their approvals. and And this facilitator gets gets approvals. Uh, the company I was working for after the Burge, it was an American company, and uh, they would pay out money, but they wanted paperwork and they wanted to know what the payments were for, and and that both parties agreed to it, and uh, yeah. and that there was a trace of of where the money went and and how much. Um, 
and uh, and so it was a very above board type of uh, types of payment. And so when when you when it's transparent like that, none of the money goes to corruption. <laughs> Nobody wants to sign their name on receiving a an envelope in the back of their no, definitely not. Um, it seems very effective. I've never done it. I've never received anything more than like a bottle of wine at Christmas mm -hmm. and uh, haven't given very much either. Uh, more than that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, you know, it, it's kind of where it starts. And so with, with the municipalities now, uh, most of the people you deal with at the municipalities don't don't accept, uh, you know, if you go out with, uh, with a planner, they'll, they'll want to buy their own coffee or their own meal. Uh, and, and that's fine. That's, 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 that's the way it should be. You don't want to feel that you owe anybody by, by, you know, going to hockey games or football games, uh, uh in the private industry, it, it's okay because you know, you're, 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 uh, uh, it, it's just different. You're not representing the, uh, the, uh, the public purse. And, and so, uh, you can accept a hockey game and, but what, what we try and do in reverse is, is return the favor. So if somebody buys you a pen, you buy them a pen just to keep things in balance. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. Did you ever read uh, willful blindness? I did not. Tell me about I had it. a copy. I want to give you Nick. Can you grab it? It's the uh, red one on the bottom shelf on the right there. I want you to have it because it's great. And I think you'll love it. It's all about uh, corruption in the in our market, um, with uh, you know, unfortunately, with the condo industry and you know, money going through the casinos and ending up in condos and that kind of thing. Um, it's not fun to read. Uh, I hate it, frankly. Um, I hate that this uh, dirty money ended up in condos and that condos are tainted by that. Their big issue um, that. Sam Cooper uncovered was, uh, you know, how easy it was to launder money through casinos and whatnot. I did read this. You did? Yeah. I recommended it to you once. And I you wanted did. To you it. did. Yeah. I'd forgotten the name of it. Yeah. Yes. Did you yeah. like it? I, you know, I got about, ah. I got about halfway through. Most people do. And, uh, it was shortly after I, 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 I received the book. Um, and, uh, Pam Goldsmith Jones, our MP at the time saw it and said, Oh my God, I want to read that book. So I gave it to her. I gave it to her. <laughs> and now I'm giving you this so you can read it in a second half. <laughs> anyway, it's a good read. Hope you enjoy it. So it, with the Burj Al Arab, you met Tom Wright, the uh, architect? I did. Tom was the the concept architect. Uh, and uh, we, uh, I was working for a, a, a large organization, kind of like SNC-Lavalin, but probably a little bit bigger. It's the UK version. Uh, they uh, and Tom was working for the same company, so uh, we had all our own in-house architects and mechanical and electrical and structural and and you name it. We had, a, I know, our own geotechnical engineers. We had we had, I think we had twenty four thousand people working for the company at the time. Wow! And uh, and so I met uh, I met Tom the uh, in the, in the site office that we had uh, in Dubai. And now you're working with him on the tallest passive house in the world. I am. We had been having trouble uh, with getting our, our project moving with the city. And uh, the chief planner at the time, uh, I was having coffee with him, uh, suggested that it wouldn't hurt if we uh, did a couple of things. One was, 
if we somehow could find a way of making the project a little greener. So I, I suggested to him, what about we do a net zero building? And he said, yeah, I kind of shrugged and said, yeah, it could probably work. Uh, I went back to our consultants and, uh, and sat with them and they said, no, don't do net zero. The city doesn't even like net zero because it's hard to measure. What they really want is passive house. What is net zero? Uh, you know, they, they said that everybody has a different definition I of it. So I, I, I didn't, uh, you know, I, I didn't pursue it any longer. It was, it was just, you know, you, you, you should be doing passive house. That's what the city wants to do. It's, it's a very measurable, uh, uh, um, it's a very measurable uh, certification. Um, they give you an energy budget of 15 kilowatt hours per square meter per year. And, and that's your energy budget for, for heating and cooling. And you also get a budget for your your the energy that you consume for for lighting and cooking and all that kind of thing. Um, and so we decided to do passive house. Maybe uh, explain what that is for someone who's never even heard the term before. Well, uh, as I was saying, it's just it's just an energy budget. So when you have an energy budget of that's that low, which is about a tenth of what most buildings use you have to prevent your building from from leaking energy and so you want it to gain energy through through solar radiation in the winter and you want it to hold on to that heat energy uh, such that uh, when you're bringing in fresh air which you need to do to keep people alive you need to recover the heat energy from the warm air that's leaving the building and dump that energy into the cold air that's coming in and so that's one aspect. The other is the envelope. So that means the the walls, the exterior walls and windows that that make up the envelope of the building are need to be need to be very efficient so that they don't leak energy that you've you've managed to heat up your building and and they they retain that. So so the 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 windows are our windows on our, our building will be like no other windows uh, in terms of their energy efficiency and our walls will be very, very, you know, for a high rise building where you're trying to sell, where you're selling views and you've got a lot of window area. In our case, we've got about 35% window wall ratio. So windows to wall to opaque wall. You've got to put a lot of technology into the envelope to, to make it work and, and meet passive house certification. So the certification, does it come from Germany? It sounds like a German word or... or the Passive House Institute, their head office is in Darmstadt in, in Germany. Okay. And uh, and there's places like Heidelberg now that are only building Passive House. All of the country of Belgium is is all only Passive House now. So it's a it's a certification that's catching on uh, yeah. world, worldwide and and uh, and Vancouver has has expressed uh, their interest in in converting all new construction to passive house uh, in the upcoming years. So that sounds cool. So, and it's basically around energy efficiency and it's, it uses 10% of the energy of a regular building. It's about 10% of the, of the, of what a, a regular building would use. That's correct. Amazing. Yeah. And the main ways to achieve that is through heat recovery, ventilation and envelope and envelope. Those, yeah. those are the two principal ones and, and, and orientation, which you can't do on a, on a high rise building like ours. It's not like we can turn it 90 degrees and, and it doesn't make a difference. We need, we need views in all direction because that's what we're selling. Totally. Yeah. And if you want to have, you know, enough windows, you need some pretty cool windows. Are they triple paned or quadruple paned? Well, they are triple paned. Um, and, and we're, we're still in the design phase. So, uh, you know, the couple of things that we're looking at is, 
is one is is vacuum glass where instead of putting in a, a gas like argon to that prevents conduction of heat through through the the space between the two pieces of glass they take all the air out and when there's no air to to vibrate or circulate and convect and conduct then the amount of heat loss is 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 reduced way down but the the pressures, because we're we're kind of at the bottom of the ocean here in our atmosphere, the yeah. pressures are quite high on on the glass. It's about one ton per square foot, and and the separation between the I mean that's how much gas they put in between the panes. Is that pressurized? No, we're we're at the bottom of an ocean here. Um, we have atmosphere, and it's a fluid, and we're down on the ground. It's like we're at the bottom of an o. Uh, you know, if if there was no atmosphere and you were down at the bottom of the ocean, you'd have a lot of pressure. Of course. And so here, you you can think of it the same way. Even though it's 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 a it's a gas, it's not a liquid. It still has has mass, oxygen and and, and nitrogen, which make up most of the air, have have mass, and they're they're under the influence of gravity being put down and. When you've got uh, two sheets of glass that have nothing in between, if the if there was no atmosphere, there'd be no pressure. But once you load up the atmosphere, it presses in on the glass. Okay. And so to, the the glass, the separation in a normal window is about a half an inch thick, uh, and in vacuum glass, it's 0.2 of a millimeter, so it's very very thin. Wow. And then they put little pillars every couple of inches in a grid pattern to keep the windows. And if you look at it closely. I've, which I've done. I've got a number of samples in my office. You can see that the glass is is bending in between the pillars. It's under a huge amount of stress um, because of the, the the pressures involved. But it has an interesting characteristic in that it you know normal normal glass, normal triple glaze glass, you can get up to about an R six with uh, with vacuum insulated glass. You can get up to about an R fourteen in center of glass. So it's 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 a it's the holy grail. The problem is it hasn't been used in buildings of our size and trying to get the windows in, in, in the in the dimensions that we need. Uh, there's there's about four or five manufacturers, but all of them seem to be just under the the uh, the dimensions that we, we need. Um, and then the other thing we're looking at is uh, electrochromic glass, which is a glass that uh, darkens and lightens uh, depending on on the uh, the conditions outside and. On a sunny day in the winter, you, you want to be able to bring in heat. And on a sunny day in the summer, you want to be able to keep keep it in shade. And so because our building doesn't have eyebrows that kind of stick out and, and prevent sunshine from, from coming in, that's another thing that we're, we're looking at right now. Cool. And are you pre-selling yet? We're hoping to launch this fall, late okay. fall. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I wish you the best of luck with it. Well, you asked me how... how uh, you know how we ended up getting Tom involved, and so the the other thing that the city asked us to do, the chief planner at least asked uh, that we think about was was bringing on board some international flavor in terms of architecture. And so I, having worked with with Tom on on, on the Burj, I uh, came back to the office and uh, and called him, and uh, and immediately he was interested. He came over came over here he had never been to Canada he came over a couple of weeks later and uh, and had a had an idea um, and uh, presented it uh, we were quite thrilled with it and a couple of weeks after that he came back with a model under his arm took it on the plane and we showed it to the city and the city got up and the chief planner just said congratulations and uh, and from that point we've been moving forward with, with yeah. the city so 
Yeah, it's a cool. turning point for us. Yeah, well, I, I hope you're successful. I hope it gets yeah. built. I think, um, you know, it is the right way to go, you know, for the environment, for building technology and everything else. It'll be awesome. Well, I hope it gets built as well. It's a, yeah, it's a gorgeous building in, in, in more ways than one. And, uh, and we're pretty excited about it. Cool. Anything else um, you want me to know what's next for you? I know you got a big project in West Van. Yeah. Um, we've got a, uh, a nine acre parcel that's uh, right in the center of the geographic center of, the, of, of, of West Van. And uh, it's, uh, it's currently zoned for um, 32 single family homes. The uh, city has indicated that they would like it rezoned and, and uh, instead of building large homes, they've, They've advocated, uh, uh, you know, smaller units, higher density. Um, we've gone in with a couple of different scenarios of which they've uh, they've kind of shrugged, and so we're we're not sure where we are with with that project. We're we've put in a development permit now for the 32, uh, 32 homes. It's kind of a you know that's that's life, and uh, and um, we'd like to do something more intense. We had uh, we had proposed putting in a gondola from the beach house restaurant up to uh, our site and then, and then continuing on to the first lookout on the Cypress bowl road. Uh, at that point, um, we didn't get a lot of, a lot of positive feedback from the, from the city, even though we said we would pay for it and donate it to the city as part of our community amenity contribution. West Van is, is not a, a, a city that, uh, that likes change and, uh, and so maybe it's the right project, but the wrong city. Free gondola sounds cool. Maybe it was going over people's houses that wouldn't have wanted it. It didn't or? go over anybody's houses. No, the city owns the land all the way up to our property, and we were going to donate the land that would uh, that would travel beyond that huh. up to the lookout. Um, but no, it, it would be controversial, uh, and uh, and uh, the, I, I'm not sure that they would have the appetite to take on something like that, even though it's. You know, it was the route would have been up 25th Avenue or 25th Street, and uh, you know, I I I only spoke to two people that lived on on, on 25th. One was a friend that uh, that she happened to see me when I was in Dun in Dunderave at a coffee shop uh, talking to uh, talking to the city's uh, uh, commercial officer about it, and we had run a, a survey in Dunderave to see if there was support for it, and all the businesses were very very behind it. So when she came up, she was asking what we were doing. And I said, oh, we're looking at putting a gondola in, just an idea, but we're just trying to throw it around. She goes, a gondola? And I said, yeah. I said, uh, she goes, well, where would it go? I said, oh, right up 25th. She goes, well, you know where I live? And I said, yeah, tell Steve where you live, Tabitha. And she says, well, I live at 25th and, and Mathers. And I said, now, would you be for or against this? And she said, well, I don't know. Would, would I be able to put my mountain bike on it? I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> So she said, okay, then I'd be for it. <laughs> really? So. Yeah. But there would be a lot of people that would be living along 25th that probably would be opposed to it and they would get organized. And so you would, you'd be, you know, you'd be swimming upstream in terms of trying to get this thing forward. I think most people that I've talked to like the idea a lot, but yeah. uh, the, 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 the thing is now the, the, the homes that are along uh, uh, Dopplemeyer, who's one of the, the, the manufacturers of these gondolas that put them in are doing more ski are doing more residential gondolas than ski area gondolas at the moment. And, uh, they said that they're, 
they've got uh, you know glass again that can go dark for privacy and light our ours was going to be kept down very low uh, as as it went up 25th so it wouldn't be much higher than a double decker bus going up up 25th and they're very few and far between um it's not like you've you've got them every uh every 30 or 40 meters these would be uh you know with with the amount of travel on them they, they would be separated and uh and so it would it would be it would be good for the community in terms of being able to uh get people up to the lookout without having to drive an internal combustion car get rid of parking up there the city owns land up there as well as the province they could develop that area up top and um there would be an issue of parking in Dunderave and how would you handle that? But, you know, maybe you have to show a bus, a bus uh, a token that you've, you've taken a public transport to get to the gondola. Otherwise you can't get on. Who knows? I mean, yeah. there'd, there'd be, those are, those are issues that. Uh, Aren't going to matter now anyway. Yeah. As, as we get into more autonomous vehicles, right. They're, they're not going to, uh, they're not going to be as, as important, but yeah. Uh, yeah, we we felt it would have been a, a great community amenity. I, I was I chaired the Spirit Trail Committee in West Van for a lot many many years ago. But uh, this this gondola could take people from the Spirit Trail all the way up to the forested lands, and and so it would be a way of getting up there and getting people uh, uh, up to the um, up to the forested lands from down below. It would have been cool, but NIMBYism is real, right? And they weren't even interested. It's real, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're right beside the school, Collingwood, right? Any partnerships with them or, you know, student or family housing or, or teacher housing? Well, if we were going to, you know, go with a higher higher density, get the, the it rezoned with higher density, the schools expressed some interest to us that they would, they would like to be a, a part of that in some way. We haven't really figured out what way, um, but uh, they would like to have, uh, yeah, smaller units that uh, right now, 40% of the faculty, teachers and staff, drive across two bridges to get to Collingwood right now. Crazy. And yeah, so they, they see a big plus if, if there was a four, you know, houses that are, their staff and teachers could afford that uh, where they can walk to school. I'm surprised cities don't lean into that way harder, frankly. And I don't think private school teachers are, are their top priority, but, um, you know, I see uh, like old fire halls, for example, you know, in, in these prime locations throughout cities and they definitely need to be there. And it's the same story for the firemen, right? That most of them um, are regular people that quite often have to work two jobs and uh, uh, drive from somewhere far. And I think maybe this is a stupid idea, but why not have, uh, why not rebuild that fire hall? Why not have a tower uh, and have like family oriented homes in the tower specifically built for these uh, families of the people that work in the fire hall. It's a great idea. Yeah. And have a giant, like 30 story pole. They can just slide down in the case of emergency. (laughs) (laughs) I'm joking about that part, but I mean, you know, affordable housing is hard to solve. It's about like looking at the the people that we need in our communities and, and what are their specific needs and, and what, what do we have? Like this great piece of land. How can, how can we solve it? Well, this, the city had committed to building, I, I, I forget the number, but it was a couple of thousand units in West Van over the course of their their term, affordable units. And uh, I was had coffee last week with uh, with an individual uh, uh, that's well placed in, in in West Van that works for them, and uh, he was telling me that they've presented, I think, three thousand units if I if I've got my numbers right, and uh, they've only got 
20 approved. Um, so it's, it's our elected officials and it, it's, it's us as a society that need to put more pressure on them to do what they're, they say they're going to do when we elect them. Um, but it seems, uh, it seems that there's just not enough, or, or, or I, I think what it is, is these have to go into some neighborhood and, and the, the people in the neighborhood don't want to see change. So even though the elected official has slob as, as, has gotten placed because of their, their policy that they want to get more, as soon as there's any resistance, they cave to that, uh, that resistance. And that's kind of the easy way out. Cause they want to be reelected because they want to be reelected. Yeah. Yeah. And they see that these are, these are votes. They're not going to gain any by pushing this for this project forward, but they're going to lose some votes from the people on that street. And if you, if you keep doing that, eventually uh, you lose support and don't get elected. We're launching a tower called contour in Metro town right now. And, uh, it has an affordable housing component, um, as all, new towers in metro in sorry in burnaby do where on the property that's being redeveloped um whatever apartment dwellings were in there need to be replaced and uh that the offer when the new building's ready the offer needs to be made to the uh, original tenants of the old apartments to get first option of living there and they get 20 percent off market rates and there's a sort of resistance to affordable housing from the general public. You know, I think when they hear that word, it probably needs to be rebranded um, because when they hear the affordable housing, they imagine, I don't know what they imagine, but here we are in Gastown right now. I think they imagine the people that, you know, like the guy that you saw sleeping under the tree when you came in, the long shaggy hair and the funky glasses and have a nap. Um, I think they imagine homeless people, but the, the reality is that I own a two bedroom new, quite a new two bedroom condo in, in Metro town and it rents for $3,000 a month. And so 20% off that would be, would be $2,400 a month, you know, and realistically in, in two or three years when this tower is built, rents will probably be higher. So we might be looking at like $3,400 worth of market rent going down to 2,700 and sharing a lobby or an elevator uh, with someone that's paying $2,700 a month is no big deal. And I would argue that no one would even notice, and it's not going to be an impact on, um, on the on the owners of the condos, um, and and the the people that I've talked to about that with that example, they totally agree. Are you familiar with the uh, Broadway corridor and and in, in, in the city of Vancouver what they're doing for rental replacement? Because someone was asking me about it at a party the other day, and my understanding was that uh, it was similar to what I described in Burnaby, except that. Um, the rental rate was the old rate for the old building uh, as opposed to 20% off the current market rate. And I don't, I think that's probably true. Um, and they were asking me kind of what I thought about that. Um, and what I think about it is that it's a good solution for the renters that were there because again, they get a brand new home for the same old rents that they were paying and it's definitely a win. But the developers that we work with, um, would probably say that those costs are just being, you know, it's like kick the can. They're just being passed along to the people that are going to be buying the homes in that building, buying the condos. And in a way, it seems like it's a complicated problem and it requires a very complicated solution. Uh, and this solution is, is, well, it's a good deal for the renters. It's increasing the cost of the condos and the price of the condos. 
So it seems strange to me in that, in that, that this solution is really spreading the gap. Maybe someone renting in there aspires to own their own home. And now the price of that home in that, in that same location where they live is higher than it would have otherwise been. And then those higher prices elevate, call it the market, you know, of the prices of the neighboring buildings and whatnot. And, and the whole um, high tide floats all boats thing is happening. Anyways, I don't know. It's complicated. What do you think about it? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. You probably know more about it than, than I do. I, I do know that, uh, you know, we had approached the city for our building and instead of putting in rental uh, for the social housing, we have 15 floors of social housing in our building, that we put in uh, 15 floors of affordable home ownership where the people buying are getting subsidized to be able to purchase the unit based on their, their income. AHOP. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, but they get into the market. They're able to, they're able to enter the market. Uh, and that, so that's BC housing. That's, that's, that's their program. That's uh, yeah. Now the city of Vancouver doesn't have policy set up for it yet. So we weren't able to, we weren't able to, to go down that route and they're not set up that they can react very quickly to, to do that over the course of the, you know, the years that we've been working on this. Uh, I'm not sure why, but, uh, uh, it seems like a pretty simple concept, but it, it, it does get complicated, like who's eligible to, to get in and, and who's not. And uh, how do you gear it to, uh, to income in terms of the, uh, but th those, t those details I think can, can be dealt with, but the city just felt they didn't have enough time to develop policy around it. So I don't know why they're involved. My understanding of, of a hop is that it's a family income of 150,000 or less. If, so be, if it was a couple and they're both working, obviously the combined income. Mm -hmm. And that is, uh, that's a huge swath of people. I mean, that's a very normal and healthy family income. So that's the, the main criteria. And then they're essentially getting uh, what is essentially a free loan from the government um, for a portion of their deposit or their down payment. So it's a, it's a great opportunity for, for regular people to get in. Well, the, the, the program that we were looking at was the, the you would go to a, a traditional lender for the for the first mortgage, and that the government would provide the second mortgage to cover the the yeah. difference. And there was you're right, I think it was one hundred and fifty thousand. But the, the problem with the city, at least from their perspective, is they no longer own the asset. But this is residences. This is like who should own the residences? Yeah, I no, think they, the people that are living in them should own them. Uh, but the city felt, hey, well, no, but we're we're getting this asset now. And and if we do that, we don't get the asset. That's exactly right. They don't. Which is it, it, which is is strange. I mean, that's just yeah. It's so that's why yeah. because they wanted the asset. They like no no we don't like that because that ownership is going to go to the actual people to buying right. the second mortgage. And, uh, God forbid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they would rather have you parse out that part of the building and just gift it to them. Yeah. Um, I get it. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. Yeah. So. It sounds like you're you're not sure what it's going to be, but there are 15 floors. So no, we we are sure it's going to be a rental social okay. housing. Okay, we hand it over to the city. Yeah, uh, for a dollar, and then they 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 run it. 102 units, separate door, separate lobby, or is it all separate together? door, separate lobby? Their their choice. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we we didn't buck the tide, but I mean, they, they we at one point I had suggested to the chief planner, hey, we just have them all come through the same entrance. Uh, and he didn't have a problem with that, but the, the housing department did. They want to be able to have a lockable, secure area that, uh, if they're responsible for it, it's it's a separate parcel, separate airspace, and they, they want it to I be uh, a secure control under their control completely. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. They used to not like that kind of thing. They wanted, they called it a poor door. 
And well, we have like two it. doors off Nelson that are both identical. They're both yeah. revolving doors, and, yeah. and so there's no poor door on our building. <laughs> at least you can't tell when you look at it. No, they look the same. They look the same. Different kind of people walking in and out, yeah. maybe. Cool. Well, thanks for thanks for sharing your story. Well, thanks for having. Yeah, me. it's been so fun. Thanks. Um, we have that gift for you. It's uh, not much. We talked a lot about corruption. It's a very high quality uh, <laughs> thermos kind of thing that you can put your coffee in and keep it hot. But that's it. Thanks for coming, man. Well, I thank you it. very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Rick. Have a good day. Take care, Cam. Bye. All right, we're back. We're back, ladies and gentlemen. Went after. Uh, we finished the show. Rick started uh, telling us and showing us the uh, data he collects on CO2. And I find it fascinating. Um, and he's got a graph, which we will share with you. And uh, it's up on our big screen now. So, Rick, what are we looking at here? So, this is a, a, a graph that I started in um, uh, 2005. My son uh, asked me if I'd ever heard of the Keeling curve. And uh, I hadn't. Shockingly, but it's a it's a graph of of CO two. Uh, Keeling was a, an American who, in uh, nineteen fifty four, the year I was born, figured out a way of very accurately measuring CO two in the atmosphere. To uh, point, uh, these are in parts per million, but he, he could he could measure it in 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 one one hundredth of a, a part per million. So I'm looking on the left there. That's the CO2 parts per million, and it's uh, 310 going up to 430, and then there's the years along the x-axis. Call it 1940. Starting I right. think the data starts in 1954. There, it starts in 1958 because when he figured out how to do it, he he then it, w- it was about four years before they got a setup in in Mauna Loa in Hawaii, where they wanted to pick a, a point where it was very far from everywhere. And uh, and that it represented sort of the world, the world uh, ad- average of of uh, CO two. Obviously, if you set up your instrumentation, you know, close to a city, it would be like measuring, you know, close to the exhaust pipe of a car. They they wanted to be far away from everywhere, so they would get a better idea what the world was doing. Why does it end at two thousand and five? Or whatever that well, this this was when I was given the information. Oh, I see. So I, this was this was what I I, I just plotted. It. I right. dumped the information into uh, into Excel and and just plotted it up. Uh, the uh, the information comes on a you know is in a, is in a matrix, and so I, I just took it and and put it on here. So you see that you know throughout the year it goes up and down once per year, and that's because the the northern hemisphere holds most of the the land mass, and the land mass holds most of the vegetation. So is that why this this line that's going up like a almost like a hockey stick, or at you know like a forty degree angle, um, it, but it has zigzaggy within the line? It's the zigzags yeah. that 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 are the annual fluctuations. And so in the summer, when the leaves come out, the leaves absorb CO two, and so the, the the concentration in the atmosphere drops. And in the winter, when the leaves fall off. It starts to climb all through the winter and and uh, until May, and then it, it, it drops see. again. So you're speaking about summer and winter. We're talking about the whole globe here, but you're talking from a northern hemisphere's point of view. Yeah, well, Hawaii's in the northern hemisphere, and because most of the land mass is in the northern hemisphere, this this actually is fairly representative of the whole planet. Yeah. So I, what I wanted to do was predict using this curve, and, and so doing a little bit of reading uh, at the time, uh, it was clear that the the CO2 prior to the Industrial Revolution varied between 180 
and 280 parts per million, depending on whether we were in an ice age or not. So over the last several hundred thousand years, it's just varied between 180, goes up to 280, goes along, drops down to 180, depending on whether there's an ice age or not. How do they know that? Well, they, they drill into ice yeah. and there's little bubbles retained and they take those bubbles bubbles and they look at the concentrations of, of CO2 in those in those bubbles. And uh, so I knew it was at 280 back in at the time of the Industrial Revolution. And so this is an exponential curve uh, with a sine curve mapped on top of it. And so you can see... The, the red data follows quite closely. It's just a best fit curve that I that I created at the time. Yeah, I see that. So just to tell people what we're looking at again, it's another graph, but CO2 parts per million is on the left, going from, call it 250 to 700. And the, the, the years on the x-axis start at 1850 and go all the way to 2100. Right. And this sine curve in the blue just lays right over top of that Red it's a curve. sine curve mapped onto an exponential. So it's it's a combination of the two two curves. So it, I don't know the difference. I know well, an exponential, exponential is is just means that if you uh, double something and then double it again, That's double it again. I know. And, I know that one. Yeah. And what does sine mean? Sine is just a, an oscillation up and down. Okay. So if it was a, just a straight sine curve, it would be just a horizontal line that I would be see, going I up see. and down. I see the up and downs now. Right. Yeah. So you've got both the up and down and the climbing. So what um, you're saying is like what the, that data that you were given is consistent with this. this That's right. And, and so how, how, the question is, well, how, how consistent is it? So this is uh, this is kind of the scorecard. I, I would I would mark up each month, but on on this because there's, there's so many months between uh, 2005 and now, I I've done it by year. But if you look at the top of the red, you'll see that it it goes year by year. You can see it just added another year there, uh, and so I was pretty accurate. I bet somebody in 2006, a friend of mine, that in in 2014 we'd break 400 parts per million. And so when you go to 2014, you can see the red increases each time I'm clicking here. So the red goes up. And indeed, it broke 400 parts per million in 2014, and I got a beer out of it. But <laughs> it even continued on, you'll see, for a few more years. But it started to rise up in the last six, five or six years. And so that's bringing us now up to date. And you can see that we're, I see that. we're now going above what is essentially a pretty scary curve. Yeah. So just again, to bring people back to what we're looking at, it's another graph and he's, he's sort of like clicking through and showing us that, you know, as he adds on the, the real time data, call it year after year, that that red part of the curve is actually exceeding that, that oscillating uh, exponential curve that's in blue. And it was already a terrible shaped curve. It was already a scary curve. That's right. So I, I guess it, there's a you could say well you could reformat the curve and and go with a steeper exponential but it would pull it off some of the other data that's in this curve uh, you know th another explanation could be that it's it, we're starting to see some some feedback so there's there's human caused uh, increase that's now uh, uh, getting into a, a situation which has been predicted that it'll eventually get into a runaway state where no matter what we do we won't be able to slow it down which is even a, a, a scarier thought. But I, I have no explanation for it other than than uh, the original curve was was maybe a little bit too gentle, but it was done without bias. Uh, I didn't know what the future would hold, and uh, I haven't changed it since 2005. So you're a believer in global warming. 
Well, I'm 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 a believer in climate change. Uh, I, I don't think anybody that's uh, that's uh, you know serious about the planet, uh, you know, it doesn't believe uh, believe in it. Even even some people, some of my friends say they don't believe in it, but deep down inside, I think they I think they really do. Yeah, some people don't. Some people think that uh, global warming is just either a hoax or nothing we need to worry about or normal. There's nothing we can do sure. about it. Well, 40% of the people voted for Trump. <laughs> was it only 40? Uh, something around there. Was it? I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's weird and scary. Yeah. And I appreciate you collecting that data and laying it out. And I look forward to sharing it with everyone. So um, you can see that the passions of, um, of individuals like Rick are um, illuminating providing proof that uh, this stuff is real and the numbers are pretty scary if you think 100 years into the future 